Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey, and with me is my lovely daughter, Aurora. Hello, everybody. She's also the producer of the show and makes everybody sound really smart because she cuts out all the ums and mouse clicks and everything else that goes on behind the scenes that you'll never know is there. Yeah. Thank you, Aurora. <laughs> We're a day late with this. We hope to come out Sunday evenings. Well, actually, our new schedule is going to start after next week. So our next episode will be Sunday. And then we're not exactly sure what the publishing schedule will be. But there'll be three or four right in a row, probably four on right a Monday. A four right in a row on a Monday there. So we'll let you know when that happens. And what was I talking about? Oh, we're daylight. Yeah. Yeah. And we were out last night watching. Watching the lunar eclipse. The super blood moon. Yeah. It was very cool. Yes. And I had just, I had learned from my sister yesterday evening that it was a pedigree full moon, full lunar eclipse. So it was a full moon at the closest point in the Earth's rotation, uh, the Earth's rotation with the moon. And then we got a full, full lunar eclipse as well. So you got to watch that. We had to watch that. We had to watch that. And we're also watching my father-in-law can 40 quarts of tomato sauce. Yep. My wife cooked down all the tomatoes that she could pick yesterday because the frost is coming soon here up in central New York Mm -hmm. and spent the entire day making spaghetti sauce. My poor father-in-law was up to 115. Yeah. That's a lot of sauce. That's a lot of sauce. Even for Italians. (laughs) Okay. This week's episode is with Alia Thabit. And Aurora, why don't you tell us about Alia? Whoops, I forgot. We have to hear from... Logan. Logan. Before we do that, Logan sent us a message early this morning. Thank you, Logan, for getting it in. And we just happened to be late because he was also unavailable. He didn't have cell phone service. So as soon as he got into an error with cell phone service, he sent us the update. So before we go to Alia, here's Logan. Hi, McKay. It's Logan McCulloch with The Trek for Truth. It's Monday morning, and I'm in California. Calling in my update a little bit late. Uh, I did not have a cell signal when I was up on Carson Pass in California on Saturday. Yesterday, I arrived in Folsom, California, and I'm being hosted by a local Lyme disease family. And uh, they had gathered their support group so I could meet them and have a talk with them um, yesterday. And uh was very, very much fun. And the day kind of got away from me, so I wanted to try and get this update to you and your listeners as early this morning as possible. So I am just barely over 100 miles away from San Francisco. I'm taking the day off to uh, rest and recuperate a little bit here in Folsom, California with my hosts and enjoy their company. And uh, so Tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, I'll continue to head west, and I will reach the Golden Gate on Friday afternoon, and I'll shoot some video and upload that to our trekfortruth.org website. And then uh, I'll head down the last few miles to Pacifica, California, and Saturday afternoon, we'll have a gathering of uh, local Lyme advocates and patients and other Trek for Truth supporters and uh, roll the tires and the feet 
into the Pacific Ocean and Pacific of California. This coming Saturday, October 3rd, about 1 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, I'll phone in one last update just to let you, you and your listeners know we made it. And then flying back to little Kentucky and uh, going to be reunited with friends, family, and my dog, Cuz, uh, on Monday, October 5th. So thanks again for covering the trek. Almost there, uh, right at 4,000 miles covered, and we'll wind up just a little over 4,100 when we're done. Take care and have a great week. It's Logan checking out. One more update. Bye-bye. He's almost done. Yeah, only one more hundred more miles. So think good thoughts for him so he can finish. That's right. So he'll be in San Francisco on Friday afternoon, then make the last few miles down to Pacifica. So if you're anywhere near that area, October 3rd, that's a Saturday at 1 p.m., go dip your toes in the ocean with Logan and uh, tell him thank you for trekking for truth. Yes, indeed. All right. Now back to Alia. All right. Tell us about Alia. Okay. Alia first started dancing when she was 16, when she attended a belly dance class just down her street in Brooklyn, New York. These classes sparked a passion that would inspire her for the next four decades. Alia has danced on three continents, six countries, and 15 states, and has presented seminars with international stars. In 2007, she discovered Sufi master Dunya McPherson, who taught meditation through dance, which brought a whole new level of spiritual connection to her dancing. She teaches dancers to listen to their body and promote healing through the power of breath, oriental dance, and intuitive movement. Thanks, Rora, and here's Alia Thabit. So I'm going to begin by asking you, how did you get interested in belly dancing? Um, there was a class down the street. No way. Way. Where where, I, were, um, where were you I'm living? At? Wait, 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 wait. Where were, you're living in New York? I'm, well, I'm from there. I don't live there now. I live in Vermont right now. But I'm from New York, and I grew up in Brooklyn. My family on my father's side is Arabic. Okay. And Lebanese, like Syrian, Palestinian, Lebanese, that whole area. And so there was this belly dancing class down the street. And I was 16, and I said, Oh, you know, that'll be cultural and sexy too. So I trotted down the street. It was all of like, you know, half, halfway down one block. It was really literally right there. And, and it was fun. It was really great and it was fun. And my gal who was teaching the class, who's still a friend of mine, after a while she got tired of it. She said, well, if you guys want to keep doing this, you can go to my class, the class that I go to, you know, my teacher's class. So, okay. So I go there, and unbeknownst to me, her teacher is like this internationally famous dancer, Ibrahim Fada. So I like go from the little class down the street to the professional performers class, <laughs> you know, in, in this historic studio, the Jerry Leroy Studio up on 48th Street and 8th Avenue, which is now gone to make way for high-rises. And you you had no idea? I, I had no idea. And in fact, I had no idea until years later, because this was in the 70s. I had no idea until years later when I'd like moved away from New York and you know come back again because this one dancer that I really admired 
um, was being honored, so I went to the thing, and I just watched all the other performers, and I thought, I can do that. Yeah. I can totally do that. And that it wasn't until then that I started to understand the education that I had gotten, mm -hmm. because I had no frame of reference. Right. Like, oh, I go to class. Yeah. I got an incredible education. And so and, what was, that sounds like it's really intense. So, you know, there's one thing going around the corner to a local belly dance. Yeah, we wiggle around, dance to some fun music, clap some cymbals around or whatever. But then going to somebody's professional, was was it still fun or was she demanding? What was her personality? Because you go to professional well, ballet a, dancers. It was a guy, first of all. Oh, was a man. No way. I missed that part. Right. Yeah. Everybody name was, uh, um, so well, did, his nickname was Bobby. Everybody called him Bobby. Bobby Sarah. Did he demonstrate yeah he danced yeah he's yeah he's a great dancer <laughs> he's a great dancer it was a great class i'm having a and cultural experience cool. <laughs> no. i know because who the thunk it you know not me but you know people in the over there people like some people are very religious and they don't dance right um and you know, but everybody else dances. Men, women, children, everybody dances. Okay. And, and um... And it was the know, 70s. <laughs> well, it's, that's true. And, the, you know, fundamentalism has really made a lot of strides since the 70s. Things yeah. were very, very open. Yeah. But, you know, and, and in the United States, there's not so we have this sort of like Puritan leftover frowning on anything that might actually be fun. And when belly dance came here, was brought here actually in the late 1800s. Like the guy, the people who brought it, they spent a lot of money, you know, to bring these performers over, and so they had to make their money back. So they put the dancers in a tent. They closed the tent. They said it was too shocking. You know, ladies uh, weren't allowed, only right, men. Right. And they sold the show on sex. And really, the dancers never recovered from that because people still are like, oh, you belly dancer? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So there's still like a million people out there who think this is like, you know, next to stripping, where historically, this is an incredibly ancient dance. It has nothing to do with stripping. It's just how people dance in a huge part of the world. It doesn't even have a name in Arabic, actually, because it's so ubiquitous. It's just, it's dance. This is what you do when you dance. Huh. So it's just like normal people. This is how they dance. Oh, I went to Brazil once, and everybody sambas from age mm -hmm. three on and mm -hmm. it's just uh, it's just amazing and they all just they all just move i never felt like more of a klutz in my entire life uh, <laughs> yeah and, and everybody dances yeah and, and you know, men and women dance and everything and samba is a couple's dance and yes um you know belly dance or they call it la charki which in Arabic means dance of the East to, just to differentiate it from dance of the West because there's just like Raksa's dance and it's just Raksa, Raksa, country dance, whatever. Mm -hmm. 
but people do and people do dance together. But you know, I was in Brazil too because the biggest belly dance festival in the world happens to be in Sao Paulo. Okay. And people there are just so much less hung up. Like we got a cab to the to the place, the event hall one, and the cab driver was like, "Oh, my daughter belly dances. She's seventeen. She's." so beautiful yes you should see her he was so proud of her mm-hmm. it was very nice so when so obviously we do have our puritan roots there's no doubt about that so but but we we used to dance i mean even the shakers and the quakers used to dance what when did when did we stop dancing that's a good question okay I have my I have, own thoughts, actually, but I wanted to hear, since you're actually a dancer, I want to hear from you. I'm not sure if the, if the Shakers thought of what they did as dancing. They shook. Yeah. And, and it's, it, that's really, like, what I've been interested in the last couple of years is um, trauma release. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole school of that that literally involves shaking. Really? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's called, it's T-R-E, Traumatic Trauma Release Something. I can't remember what the E stands for. But, like, the people just, like, shake. Okay. Well, <laughs> think about the shaker. So th- that's funny. Cause this is where the interview was going to go. But since we're here, let's 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 stay here for a little bit. Because you brought together kind of that, the trauma release with the belly dance. And how how did you put those two together? Because you went from having fun, yeah, I'm this belly dancer, having a great time, studying with this great teacher. And then when we talked, it was like, yeah, and by the way, I'm doing some trauma release kind of stuff with the belly dance. And that just absolutely captivated me. So how did you fit those two together? It, it, I started looking into trauma release stuff for my own personal growth. And everywhere I looked, it'd be like um, EMDR, eye movement, blah, blah, whatever it is, desensitization Mm -hmm. in something or another. So the eyes are going back and forth, there's a lot of midline, midline crossing, the eyes go back and forth, the eyes, you know, you drop the gaze, you lift the gaze, and you put the gaze back and forth. If you dance, when you dance, this is what you do. You constantly, like, side glances. At one point, I had to get glasses, and I was going to, like, trifocal. <laughs> and I was like, I never had them before. And I was like, what can't I do with these? And I said, well, you know, you can't really look to the side. I was like, but my whole personality is built around side-long glances. <laughs> what will I do? <laughs> it didn't turn out to be that big of a problem. But really, it's it's all like these little sideways glances, sideways glances, look down, look up. And it's like, that's really interesting. And that was like the first day, pretty much. This was the first of the visits to the first of the trauma therapists that I you know, was looking into. And the more, just the more that I read and the more that I looked, the more it became clear to me that um, oriental dance, which is another one of the many names for belly dance, is a really viable venue for trauma release. And it might be sort of, and they, 
uh, one of the things that I work with is uh, Sufi dance, not the whirling. I mean, whirling is part of it, but the particular um, lineage that, you know, I've been um, educated in to the degree that I've been educated has the exact same movement vocabulary as belly dance. I mean, it is the exact same movement vocabulary as, like, super traditional belly dance. Mm -hmm. It just has this inward focus. And then it has, like, some extra goodies, like this super slow, super slow movement. And that, and so I come at belly dance from that perspective. And all of those things are part and parcel of these somatic methods of trauma release. Because sort of the big news in, in trauma is that it's not mental. You know, you've like you've been exposed to something horrible and you go to the shrink and you talk about it and you talk about it and you don't really feel any better. Right. And sometimes you feel worse because talking about it makes you feel worse. Right. But that's because it's not mental. It's like a hardwired you know the lizard brain? Like the really I'm very familiar like with my low, lizard brain, yes. Yeah. The the earliest part of brain development is the one that manages threats. You know, it deals with threats in the environment because, you know, that people lived out on the veld, obviously there were all these kinds of threats. Yes. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh mm-hmm. my. And so the, this fairly primitive part of our brain developed some really kick-ass techniques for managing threats. You know, is there a funny little sound or something? You know, you still, you listen, uh, and your body gets ready right away to either run like hell Mm -hmm. or beat the crap out of whatever it is, you know, that's coming around. Right. And we're also, we're familiar with this, you know, what's called fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So everyone's familiar with this. But... There's certain stages in fight or flight because sometimes neither one of those things is available. You are not in a position when you can fight and you're not in a position to flee. You're screwed. You know, you're trapped. Right. So the body then has a further series of protective devices and those are the various stages of freeze. Yes. So what? So so this is really interesting because really, so somebody who's super sick and uh, mm-hmm. like tied down to breathing tubes and uh, intravenous fluids and IVs and things like that. I mean, that's where they are. They they have to freeze. So what are these stages yeah. of freezing? Yeah, because any time that you're helpless in the face of a threat, you are. Um, sort of in danger of trauma. You're not necessarily going to be traumatized, but it's, it becomes more and more of a possibility. And the longer the time period that you're helpless in the face of this threat, so when you're immobilized because of medical things, it's a lot, the discovering that there's a lot of like medical trauma. People have an operation and they come out and they're like totally messed up because of the having been helpless in this frightening, stressful 
situation. Right. So yeah, it's entirely, it's an entirely real thing. We think of traumatic events as being like, oh, you know, soldiers on the battlefield. Right. And certainly, you know, that is. But there are also very long-term chronic kinds of stress that people endure, like children who live in abusive households or, or are trapped in abusive relationships of one kind or another. They're helpless. There's really nothing they can do. They can't fight and they can't flee. Because home is where the danger is, and where are you going to go? Right. So, yeah. And and when you're in chronic pain, when you're in chronic illness for a long time, it just grinds you down so hard. And you just get so stuck and so miserable, and so you just feel so helpless and overwhelmed. So then how does movement begin to break that up? What, what do you think? Well, trauma, it is, if you think about a thorn, okay, and you get a thorn stuck in your foot. Yeah. And, it, you know, it hurts yep. <laughs> a lot. But every time you take a step where it gets bumped and your foot throbs and it hurts, so you go to the therapist and you talk about it and it's like, it hurts so badly and it happened on this day and I remember, you know, this and that and, you know, I'm a little foggy, but geez, it hurts. It doesn't do any good because it doesn't take the thorn out. Right. It's like a physical problem. You have yes. to take the thorn out before, you know, you can start to heal that injury. So what happens is that when you're in that state of danger and you're, immobilized from, because that freeze state is a biological state. So there's really, you literally can't do anything. People who have been attacked and, you know, they feel so guilty later because they didn't fight back. Well, they couldn't fight back because the body is in a state, a biological state of freeze. Right. So you're in this freeze state, but your body is being bombarded with, like... The stress hormones. um, yeah, yeah, like at a thousand miles a second. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is that the literally there's the residue of that cascade, chemical cascade, mm-hmm. gets trapped in the muscles. The body wants to protect us, mm-hmm. and it you know it would it would beat this out of you know whatever that that you know that goddamn machine that we're strapped to. And, and it can't. So the residue of that chemical cascade literally gets trapped in the muscles. And what the right kind of movement does is it allows those short-circuited, defensive actions that the body wanted to take and was not able to, it allows those to melt out of the muscles and release. That's so cool. And that, uh, so I want to con- contribute a little something here to the, the conversation. I'm taking a course called the Wisdom Course. It's offered by um, a company called Landmark Education. And they, part of what we're doing is writing an autobiography, uh, one page a year. And you kind of go through each year mm-hmm. and you put down conversations that kind of got started in that year. 
So things mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the stuff down and dirty, like, you know, I'm too fat. I look terrible in a bathing suit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have enough money. And then at some point you get to a point where they start bringing up they're not only they're the psychological verbal conversations, but there's there's what they call immediate language. So an emotional response to something, which is what you're talking about, which is a type of language. So mm-hmm. we have this immediate response to something that's pre, pre-verbal. It happens before there's any words for it. And yeah. then we talk about it afterwards. But then they also talk about structural language, which is what you're talking about. And it's been interesting because there have been some things that have hung me up over the years and around mm-hmm. embarrassment. And I remember the event. And so, I've tr- like you said, I've tried identifying it with words. And mm-hmm. it's pre-language. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is something triggers this response in me, and I can't quite wrap my brain words around it because there's no response. It's a physical response. And what it is is I go hide. Mm-hmm. And in the face of embarrassment. So something embarrassing happens. I don't complete something on time. I don't do what I said I'd do, or I just think I look stupid or well, and I'll look for a way to essentially hide behind something. Now I'm a 50 year old man. Well, 51 year old man now. And so that looks a little sophisticated and I'll have all kinds of excuses about what happened, but really I'm high. I'm a two year old hiding behind something because I got embarrassed. And I'm kind of peeking around the corner because I kind of interested in what's going on. But this has been going on for years and years and years and years and years until somebody says, oh, by the way, there's other language besides that what comes out of your mouth. It was completely unavailable to me. I couldn't do anything with it. So I totally get what you're talking about. Yeah. I had this image when I was in college one day, and it was that the room was full of invisible furniture. <laughs> and I was trying to get across the room and I kept banging myself on these things like why did I get that bruise? Yeah. Because there was all these obstacles that I actually couldn't see. And it's like that. So the guy who did a lot of this research for the somatic meaning in the body roots of trauma was a guy named Peter Levine. And he wrote a book a few years ago, that's pretty well known called Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. And then his most recent work was In an Unspoken Voice, How the Body Releases Trauma and Restores Goodness. And that's the book that I read. And I don't even remember how his name came to me. But I looked him up and I saw these books and I said, well, this is the most recent book he wrote, so I'm going to read that one. And it was I just like, Jogging. Like, I just sat there and read this book line. Holy cow! <laughs> and what his, and when he was doing his research, um, he started even in uh, graduate school, and people were like, that's stupid, don't do that, you know, that's ridiculous. Right. And he's made these really interesting discoveries. What he found, because he went and studied animals living in the wild in Africa. Mm-hmm and talk to people who work with those animals because those, the animals are subject to, you know, what traumatic interactions every day. And yet they don't become traumatized, you know, they're fine. So how does that happen? And what he found was that there's a specific set of um, physical actions that Mm -hmm. the animals went through after uh, 
potentially traumatic event. It involves shaking, snorting, expelling air, like jumping around. Yep. And they went through those and they literally shook off the trauma and went on their way. They went on their way. And when they didn't see that, they died. Right. And that, that was going to say there's an exception to that. So animals like cows and that are confined in these confinement dairies mm-hmm. can't do that. So they get stress mm-hmm. and then they need antibiotics so they don't keel over from getting from their weakened immune system and getting infections mm-hmm. and, and dying. And that is exactly what happens. And it's funny because I grew up in a city. I didn't grow up in Brooklyn. I grew up in D.C. But coming out and I mm-hmm. live in the country and we've got a dozen cows and if they get spooked – they move in a certain way. And we had a horse for a while, and horses are just spooky animals. They get scared easily. That's just how they're wired. And they, it's the same thing. And part of learning kind of a trust between a rider and a horse is that mm-hmm. the horse begins to trust you some that it doesn't need to be scared at every little thing that comes up. And But they'll kick up their heels. They'll rear back. They will snort. If the animal's trapped a little bit, like when we're holding a little calf down, their bodies will shiver like that. It, it's exactly yeah. what you're describing. You know, just animals do it. I'm sure people are close to cats and dogs. You probably don't see that as much because they more a little more domesticated. But uh, from time to time, you will you see those behaviors from them. A cat that makes a mistake, you know, it'll like do a little shaky thing and then it'll walk away and pretend nothing happened. Oh yes, I've seen the embarrassed shake. <laughs> yeah. Like right, they jump for something and they miss. <laughs> yeah. I laugh every like, time I see know, that. <laughs> switch a little bit and like get rid of it and you yeah. know. And they move mm-hmm. on. That's exactly right. And right, they don't go see their therapist exactly the about that. Way. Say that again? Yeah. People are exactly the same way. Only we've kind of lost a lot of that ability to shake things off, physically shake things off because as you know, we've become more and more partly just because we've become more and more separated from our bodies and so much of Western wisdom is like ick, the body don't have anything to do with that within your head. Well that's or, yeah. you know, people and things happen when you're small. And yes. you lose you lose your ability to um you lose that integration that you have with your body early on, and then you're really cut off from it. You become dissociated from your body, and you don't really have any avenue to get back. That's so true. I have one little short story and then a question for you. So the the sure. the short story is I'm going to forget which one was which now. Oh, good grief. <laughs> okay. Editing, editing. Aurora, bail me out. <laughs> So, let's see. Because what's happening is I've got two stories in my mind. Oh, that's that's what the second story is the question. Okay, the first story. So, what happens often in my practice, somebody will come in and say, uh, you know, I've got back pain. Can you help me with back pain? Does acupuncture? Yeah, acupuncture helps with back pain, yeah. I'll say. And I'll say, so tell me a little bit about your back pain. Well, the doctor says... Okay, and how's your back feeling? Well, the x-rays show. Okay, how does your back feel? Well, and then it starts sinking into them that they want, I want them to check in and tell me how their back is feeling. And it's been mm-hmm. such a long time since they visited their body. Now, in in defense of them, 
that's a defense mechanism. It's like their body hurts. Yes. Right. Shut that thing down. It's right. So it's like the thorn in the foot. You so you're not going to step on it. However, often the path through through to healing is through the pain, not around the pain, yes. and not away from the pain. So there's something about making. I don't want to say friends necessarily, but making peace with the pain that then can, once it doesn't run your life and you can kind of sit there, because really if, if the pain's bad enough, it'll make you pass out. And if it's not making you pass yeah. out, you know, and I, and I'm please no, don't send hate mail. Don't, I understand it's one of the, <laughs> no p- pain is absolutely, you know, you've seen people in pain and it just absolutely wrecks your life, but yeah. there are people, there are people who have horrible pain and just have enough mental or spiritual space to let it be. It doesn't mean they hurt any more or any less, but it doesn't run their life. And there are other people I have who are just terrified that they're going to have the next migraine attack. And they get themselves worked up to such a state fearing the migraine. And the migraine may or may mm-hmm. not come, but they're miserable mm-hmm. every day and don't live a life because, yep, the migraine might come. And so yeah. there's there's something there's something to that. Now, the, so the other part about disassociating, so I totally get why we want to disassociate. I mean, that's one way of dealing with the pain. It really is. But then in order to heal, you do have to come back. So maybe you disassociate while you're having this major pain event. But at some point, you do have to reconnect your body, your your yourself, your spirit to your body. And maybe that's where the, the belly dance type and the somatic stuff that you're talking about comes in comes through it's like so the strategy that got you through the pain isn't going to get you back to health you have to reconnect the two so that's that's my story now the second thing is it's a little story and then a question i was at the mall about a month ago getting my ipad glass fixed because i dropped it and cracked it Mm -hmm. and so i sat down i was having my little steamed vegetables from the chinese place and in front of me was a mom and her three kids and three two boys who are a little bit older. They're like six and four. And then a, like a one and a half year old in a stroller with the little phone. And the mm-hmm. little one was watching some Disney movie and the, f- the movie ended and the baby started fussing. The mom reached over and started another movie and the kid quieted back down. So wow. what's, What's happening with the virtual reality world and all this stuff? We don't go out and play recess anymore. We don't let kids go out and they're calling it free range kids. Now I used to play in the alley by myself and climb fences and throw stuff and see what I never, if children aren't exploring the world and we don't value the physical anymore. I mean, we don't value physical trades anymore. Everybody has to go to college and become a knowledge worker, quote unquote, what, what are we like setting ourselves up for the most massive somatic trauma that we can't deal with in 20 years? Man, that's a good question. Yeah. Do you remember the movie Wall E? You know, I never saw that. I just saw oh, bits of it. Fabulous. Is it? It's really fabulous. But Wall E ends up, I hope I'm not crossing this with another movie. I don't think so. Wally ends up getting picked up by a spaceship full of people who left Earth a long time ago, and they're all like these little plumpy, roly-poly people because (laughs) (laughs) 
like it's low gravity and they don't do anything. They just sort of sit in their, their divans and, you know, look at things on screens. And yeah, there's kids don't really have any opportunity to go out and do anything. People have all those autoimmune diseases because they never actually experience any dirt. My kids played in the woods. Bye, honey. Right. They grew up in Vermont, and you know, I I grew up in New York, and we basically went out and played in the woods all day too, except you know, it was concrete. <laughs> the concrete jungle. Yeah, exactly. I grew up in the alleys behind my house. There was all kinds of horrible stuff back there. Some mm-hmm. of it toxic, I'm sure, but it was fascinating. You know, it was it was my world, and I went exploring there many, many, many days, and it was dirty and filthy and. You know, <laughs> full of germs, yeah. but, but, yeah. The, but the point is not so much the germs that we can go down the germ thing. That's a, we've done that in other podcasts, but the, the point is this whole idea of we have, we are in physical bodies, whether we like it or not. And it's not one of the best things. Do you know, Antonio Damasio, have you gone across his work? You need, you need to read this. You'll love it. It's a book called Descartes error. And so Descartes, I've heard that name. yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous book. So Damasio is this, like a psychiatrist, he's a PhD in psychiatry and a PhD in neuroscience and maybe a PhD in something yeah. else. The guy's a genius, just flat out genius. Triple yeah. And he, he couldn't get a job. So he just kept getting more PhDs. Yeah. What, what do you do in your spare time? I, I get PhDs. What do you do? Well, I don't want That's to talk true. about it. Yeah, I, I watch Netflix. Yeah. I watch Wally. <laughs> so his his thesis is going. So Descartes wanted to do some work with science and particularly the human body. And at the time, the church was the preeminent power, and they said, "Ah." Uh-uh not going to happen. So he started negotiating with them. He wasn't going to take no for an answer. And eventually the argument he came up with, look, I'm not interested in the everlasting soul. That's I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested in the mortal shell, the clay shell. That's it. So he created this artificial distinction between our soul and our, who we are and our body that we've never recovered from in the West. They mm-hmm. never had this conversation in the Eastern cultures, which is which right. is interesting. Now, it enabled amazing things to happen. I mean, we've, we've put a man on the moon. We can replace knees now. We've done amazing things by being able to make these artificial distinctions and separations. But at the same time, that technology, that verbal technology, has created this kind of mind over matter idea that we're stuck with. So... Damasio goes and says, look, it's not mind over matter. It's mind and matter. He says, it's a two-way street. He says, no information gets into your brain unless it comes through your body first. Zero information comes in any other way. So it's all somatic and get used to it. So he's trying to get people to, to reintegrate. And it's just, it's a genius book. You'll love it. It'll take what you're talking about to a whole nother level. And he is so, you know, science based, but he, you know, it's a great, it's an easy to read book. He's bringing in history and philosophy and psychiatry as, as well as his neuroscience background. It's just, just absolutely fascinating. He says, uh, sorry, I'm all excited about Damasio now. 
the other, second thing <laughs> I loved about him is so in five element acupuncture, there are these five energies that they see in mm-hmm. nature and then within the body. And with these five elements, the Chinese have five emotions that go along with it. Fear, anger, joy, sympathy, and grief. And Damasio says there are five hardwired emotions in the lizard brain. And they cross – there's no language to them. It crosses barriers. All mammals have it. It's just part of that part of the brain. It's not – Shame. It's not these higher level emotions that are kind of combination of other emotions. These are the raw, basic emotions. And he describes them as fear, anger, joy. He says disgust, not sympathy. And that got me for a while. And then grief. So the interesting thing between sympathy and disgust is really disgust is a lack of sympathy. You know, disgust is so sympathy is you can embrace it and ingest it and take it and oh, you poor baby. And disgust is the you know the grandmother spitting on her fingers, you know, because she's disowning you, type of thing. You know, just I can't swallow that. I can't take that in. I reject that at the most fundamental level. If you want to insult somebody, spit out their food, right? Yeah. So disgust also has a very basic like like physical response too, because some things like. They just make you, literally, they make you puke. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese was rebellious stomach chi, the Chinese would say. So here it is. Damasio, 2,000 years later, is saying, yeah, you know what? The Chinese are absolutely right. They're five fundamental emotions. And that just blew my mind. It's like, that is so cool Mm -hmm. that we're getting this confirmation on what people have known for thousands of years through through Mm -hmm. neuroscience. So, Alia... To wrap up this interview, you've been very generous with your time, and I want to thank you. And I also want to give you a chance to tell people what you're working on, because I think you have a great project, and I know you put something together, especially for people with Lyme and uh, the physical trauma that they have, this freeze trauma that you've talked about, and using Eastern dance, belly dance, to help begin release it and to bring joy back into their lives, which I think is just an amazing, it's an amazing idea. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about that and then how people can find out more. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a program, um, a free program that's open to anyone the purpose of which is to start being able to reintegrate the body and let go of stress while using the very beautiful and self-loving movement vocabulary of belly dance. So it's going to be all about personal luxuriance. And I think I'm even going to call it that. So anyone who's interested in this, it will be very individual just you and your body and rediscovering the pleasure of gentle movement. If you want information, just come, come. I'm on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Alia Thabit, just one long string. Okay. So if um, they search Alia Thabit, they'll find you. And that's A-L-I-A-T-H-A-B-I-T, right? Exactly. Okay, perfect. Now, uh, one thing, because I want to do this, but I'm a little bit nervous. It's like, or is everybody going to see me belly dancing? Only if you let them. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> exactly. The way this, the way that this will work is that it will be an online thing, and I'll do sort of follow me demonstrations. 
to where people will just sort of follow my movement in a very easygoing um, shadow kind of way. Okay, sounds fun. And then people will have an opportunity, then there will be a space of time for people to just move, let their body move however it wishes. So it will be very, very gentle. And those will be, um, those will be webcast. There'll be a, a Facebook group for people to interact and like have some community. And there'll be, every week there'll be more of this very gentle sort of movement. So you can do this at home by yourself. Like you can find your little quiet space for just you to do it. Once you have a little bit of experience with the movement vocabulary and the following, you'll be able to move by yourself at leisure at any time and place that's good for you. I have done stuff like in a crowded house late at night when nobody's around. I just put earphones in my ears, and sometimes I work even without any music at all. And it doesn't take very long, you know, in like 15 or 20 minutes, all of a sudden your mood will completely shift and everything will be different. It's really quite magical. You think it's like this little sparkly crackerjack prize of a dance, but it's a very, very deep and ancient, exceptional dance form. I really haven't found anything else that's like it that allows you to go so deep and yet, you know, feel so self-loving and pure. Wow, incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. Awesome. You know, one of the things that stuck with me as I was researching about her is she kept talking about the power of the breath to release pain, first to acknowledge it and then to then to release it. And isn't there uh, like a philosophy that you use in acupuncture as well that talks about the breath? Well, the breath is central in Chinese medicine and is paired with the colon. So in order... The colon? Yes, the colon. They're both part of the metal element, okay. the lung and the colon. So part of being able to take a full breath in is you have to let go. And the metal element's also associated with getting to the core of what is only essential. So it's associated with the fall. And the idea is that fall, everything dies out and returns to the soil, except what is crucial for growth next year. So focusing on the breath quiets the mind, and it also can influence the brain depending on what type of breathing that you're doing. So it can be quite sophisticated. It's also quite simple at the same time, and anybody can do it. So if you add that with that some gentle movement, like with belly dance, then all of a sudden you're releasing uh, some stored up trauma perhaps in the body. You're getting the body to move in a new way, which creates new energy and new emotions. So it's a way to get out of a rut without a doubt. Hmm. So in returning to what's essential is why yoga, why meditation, why dance is so can be so crucial to healing and kind of moving things along then. Absolutely. And that's why we're doing this four-part series. <laughs> there we go. Said very well. Okay. Alia has been very kind, and she's put together a free four-part course for you, the Lime Ninja Radio listeners. So I want you to go on over to her website, which is... 
Which is aliathabit.com. That's, hang on, that's spelled A-L-I-A-T-H-A-B-I-T, aliathabit.com. Welcome-lime-ninja-listeners. Okay, so again, that's aliathabit.com, front slash welcome-lime-ninja-listeners. And that's a bit long and complicated, so if you just head over to our website at LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on the interview with Alia, we'll have the a link right there. Just yeah. click on that, and she'll take, we'll take you right over to her website. All right? All right. Now, our, well, last, in, our last episode. No. no. Oh, got it. So she's calling it Open Heart Belly Dancing. It's a free four-part web series. It focuses on self-compassion and trauma healing through belly dance. Her emphasis is on enjoying the movement, relaxing the body, and feeling safe and self-treasured. The series is gentle, kind, and suitable for any level, including chronic pain or difficulty standing. So for something completely new in your life, go check this out. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to do it too. (laughs) All right. And our last episode about healing with movement will be with Jessica Labby. She has recovered from Lyme and is the owner of Jekka Yoga in Manchester, New Hampshire. And that'll be next week. All righty. And if you need more Lime Ninja in your life, visit our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com. There you can find all 57 past episodes. We archive the episodes so you can get back and listen to them and learn again and again from them. It's the Ninja way to learn. On the website, you can also sign up for our Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Lime Ninja Brain Fog Protocol as our thank you. That is a mouthful. It is indeed. Lime Ninja Radio is also on iTunes and Facebook. And lastly, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know ninjas can watch an episode of 60 Minutes in a Half Hour? Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.